I remember it was only a couple years ago when I found out that I was pregnant with my youngest. Um, I had been hoping to conceive my second child for a really, really long time. I mean, years had gone by, and it just hadn't happened. And I began to think that it wasn't going to happen, that it wasn't possible. And later, we found out from doctors that it was true. It, it, it really wasn't possible for us to conceive naturally. And after several years, I had sort of given up hope that I was going to conceive a child on our own. And, and I remember uh, there came a day when I was at the doctor's office and I had to get some tests done for totally unrelated things. And I remember this young nurse coming into the room and, and sort of gingerly asking me, hey, so is it possible that you could be pregnant? And I remember telling her, no, no, it, it's not. It's not possible that I could be pregnant. And she, kind of reacting as if she had just hit a, a, a big brick wall, asks again, um, no, 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 is it possible that you could be pregnant? And I responded with the same stone-faced response of, no, no, it's not possible. See, years, years of trying has told me that it is not possible for me to become pregnant. And she looked at me one more time and said, well... You're pregnant. And I turned to her and said, no, I'm not. And after that, she kind of walked out the room, not quite sure what to do with my response. And I sat there being like, mm, somebody messed something up. And she came back in and she said, I remember she was kind of like playing with her fingers, unsure like how to tell me this. And she was like, I don't know whether this is good news to you or not but you are definitely pregnant, would you like me to set up a follow-up appointment? And I left the doctor's office without an appointment set up because I was in such utter disbelief that this impossible thing could have possibly become real. It actually took me three days to even tell my husband that I was pregnant because I was lost in such utter disbelief about this being the reality. But slowly, over the course of those three days, my, my unbelief about this thing slowly melted into joy. I was ecstatic that the impossible had become possible. And fairly quickly after that, I began to get this metallic taste in my mouth that could only be resolved by eating pickles. And then I began to get this other side effect where, like, I had to pee three or four times during the course of the night. I couldn't make it from dusk to dawn without waking up over and over again and doing the tired, treacherous walk to the bathroom. And then the bizarre and weird but very vivid dreams set in. And then, of course, the morning sickness. Like, all the time, the morning sickness. If you've ever had a baby or you know somebody who has had a baby, you know that sometimes it doesn't take long for the joy of pregnancy to turn into the agony of pregnancy. That actually for four out of five mothers, this amazing change that's like happening inside of them leaves them dry heaving in the bathroom and on the bus and in the office and uh, on the side of the road and pretty much anywhere else they could be for at least the first trimester, if not all the trimesters. 
And despite the fact that everything in your body when you're pregnant feels so wrong, typically for 99% of women, it's actually the indication that things are going just as they should be that things are growing just as they're supposed to, that the change that is happening inside of you is spot on and everything's working and the transformation that's coming inside of us is going well, despite the fact that it feels so uneasy. And sometimes I wonder if Mary also found herself is as one of the four, uh, as one of the four out of five women who sort of uh, who who's, who the joy of pregnancy sort of turns into vomiting. Now I know it's really weird to think about that because we typically don't like to think about the physical realities of pregnancy and birth when we're talking about the Christmas story and the Christ child being born. We typically sanitize the whole, whole story. We sanitize Mary, and we never talk about her vomiting um, for the first three months, and, and we never talk about the, the unspeakable amounts of bizarre things that come out of her while in labor. And we don't talk about the Christ child having a, a pointy head or a flattened skull. We, we don't talk about the Christ child being covered in something before it's washed and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Instead, what we do is, is we sort of imagine this newly born Jesus with a round head sitting upright, clean and, and clear-eyed, with sort of a shiny halo and, and that newborn smell quietly and peacefully tolerating and taking in this whole new world that he's a part of. And then we imagine Mary rested and dressed, sitting on the floor of a barn, totally fine with that. And I understand why we do this. We do this because it's like a sacred story. We do this because we want it to be holy. We want the characters to be revered and respected. We, we want to set them apart from, from our lives. And so we, we sort of tidy it all up. The problem is, is that when we dismiss sort of the aches and the pains and the fluid and the hair and the naked fleshiness that's under the folds of fabric, the story sort of becomes this museum that you're not allowed to touch. It becomes like a house that's so clean you're not allowed to sit on the furniture. And in the process, when we sanitize these holy stories of God, we wipe away anything imperfect, including ourselves and the everyday messiness of our everyday lives. And we find that there's like no place for us in the story. There's no place for us to belong in the story. It's too neat, it's too clean, and it's too tidy. But the reality is, is the story of Christmas is far from neat and tidy. There's so many uh, modern assumptions that we have when we come to this Christmas story that sort of help us tidy it up and, and make it cleaner. See, we don't like to think about Mary, this pregnant woman, walking all the way to Bethlehem. So, so in our imaginations, we put her on a donkey. But in the Bible, there's no donkey. Like, nowhere does it say that Mary rode on a donkey to Bethlehem. In our imaginations and through our assumptions, we like the triangular structure and pattern and image that three wise men or magi make up. But the reality is, is we're not given a number in scripture. It could, could have been three, it could have been two, it could have been 11. Like, we don't know how many magi were there. We really like the, the assumption and the story of the Magi seeing a star in the east and following it until it lands perfectly on top of the stable where Jesus still is at. 
But scripture actually doesn't lay out that part of the story at all. It's all of these sort of assumptions that we make. And likely the most tidy and surprising assumption of all is the presence of an innkeeper in the story. But that doesn't exist either. Now the innkeeper assumption is one that I like to keep. The innkeeper is one that I like to hold on to because for me, it helps me sort of imagine a world where like there's no room for Mary and Jesus in the inn. So the innkeeper out of like compassion and grace and mercy says, oh, but I'll, I'll find something. Here's my humble stable, right? And, and uh, cueing the childhood nativity pageants, the child steps up and says, at least it's dry. At least that's how mine went. But in the original story of, in the gospel, there isn't an innkeeper. What it tells us instead is this, that while they were there, Mary and Joseph, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, in the original Greek, the word translated here as guest room is actually this Greek word. It's katalema. Katalema. Now, previous to the year 2011, the word that was translated as this in English was the word in. So if you are older than nine, all of us grew up with the story reading, there was no room for them in the inn. That's how we grew up with it. However, what happens is every couple of decades, there's these translators and these biblical scholars that retranslate the Bible. They go back to the original Greek and they sort of look at it and they say, wait a second, what sort of doesn't, like how have we translated this in the past that no longer helps our modern readers with our modern understanding of English understand what was really happening back then? And how can we create a translation that helps us understand better? And so in 2011, when they did this again, like they do every couple of decades, they went through and they got to this one word, katalima. And they got to it and they realized that this translation of the word as in actually really is based on our modern assumptions more than it's based on the reality of what we know would have been happening there. See, everywhere else in scripture, this Greek word, shows up in the New Testament, and it's translated as guest room. It shows up at the end of both the Gospel of Luke and Mark as the word describing the room where Jesus and his disciples met for the Passover feast. They gathered in this room, and they broke bread. So it wasn't an inn. It was just a guest room. And translators also realized that translating this word as the word in doesn't make a lot of sense because in those days and age, there wasn't like Motel 6 and there wasn't Best Westerns. You couldn't just stop by somewhere and check into a hotel. That, that didn't really exist. Instead, what you would do if you were traveling was, was you would try to find some family, some relational connection that lived in that town or nearby, and you'd stay with them, even if it was distant, distant, distant distant relatives. You'd you'd stay with them. And the fact that this is Joseph's hometown, the fact that during the census where everybody's supposed to go to their hometown, it's really likely that Joseph had some family members that lived there. And it's really likely that they expected him and knew that they were coming. It's also really likely that all of Joseph's family 
all of the relatives, we're also going to that town. We're also staying in that place, that extended family from all over. We're staying in the same houses together, and it was jam-packed. And as a result, someone was going to need to stay in the room that was shared with the animals. Now, I remember when I was in middle school, I think, I remember that there was some holiday where my parents decided to invite my mom's extended family to come for the whole holiday and stay at our house. So this included her mom as well as her uncle and his wife and kid, as well as her five brothers and sisters and their spouses and all of their children, which at the time I believe was 20 cousins. Now, I don't know what the final count was, but in our normal like single family house, we had 42 people spending three or four nights with us. And I remember there were lots of creative conversations about who would sleep where. And I remember that for my aunt and uncle, they got the creative but less desirable sleeping quarters of sleeping underneath the ping pong table. But of course, my grandma was given the preferred room with the door and the bed out of great respect for her. And when you think about it, And you think about Mary and Joseph. Mary, this almost due young woman, wife-to-be of Joseph. You'd think that her family would have given, offered up a better place for the pregnant wife-to-be to stay than the room with the animals. But perhaps that's another way that we've just like sanitized this whole story that within Joseph's family, this pregnant wife-to-be wasn't given the preferred guest room. And it shows this reality that they weren't really welcome, that the change that was happening inside of her, that the transformation that was coming from within her was not really understood, nor was it wanted. There was no room for any of that. Now, how ironic is it that Mary is growing and birthing the transformation that will make room enough for everyone in the presence of God, for everyone to have a seat at the table, but then she is told, yeah, but there's no room for you here. There's no room for you. Now, sometimes the transformation that God is trying to do inside of all of us and in the world is a bit painful. And it's a bit contrary to all of the social norms and expectations. And so as a result, there's sort of these no vacancy signs that go up around us, but also in our own hearts. Now, there's, there's no room for any of that here. The discomfort that this transformation brings makes us think like, oh, no, 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 I'm on the wrong path. And perhaps like you've experienced this before, like perhaps you in the process of packing up all of your worldly possessions to leave a place you've known to go somewhere you don't know that is unknown, you've had this vomitous risk like catch you in the stomach. Or maybe in the process of trying to date once again, you have this like gagging nerve reflex. Or maybe in the process of stepping away from an addiction, there's like this physical shaking that pops out. 
Or maybe in the process of trying to grieve from the loss of a loved one, there is this overwhelming lump in your throat. See, sometimes there's this uneasiness inside of us. And we read it as no vacancy signs. We read it as we're doing something wrong. But just as in the story of Christ's birth, perhaps it's a sign that we're on the right track. Perhaps it's a sign that in the middle of the big mess that is happening all around us, God is birthing something new that will transform the world and will transform it within you. And sometimes those moments feel really hard to bear. Like, I don't know that I can deal with this uneasiness. I don't know that I can deal with this pain. I don't know that I can deal with this discomfort in that moment. And as much as it might be hard to bear in that very moment, my hope for you is that you don't lose sight of the joy and the love that this whole process is really rooted in. I mean, I remember when I first gave birth to my first. No, 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 I'll back it up even more when I was pregnant with my first. And I just remember thinking, nobody tells you about this. Like nobody tells you how crazy this is. And I remember swearing to myself that I would never have any more children because this is horrible. And yet, almost immediately after it all passes, mothers again and again and again all over the world say, I want another one. Let's do this again because why are they doing it? Love. It's all rooted in love and joy. And God's answer to why God left the majesty of heaven to grow in a uterus, the answer to the question of why the almighty God became vulnerable enough to let some other person wipe its bottom, the, the reason why the everlasting father subjected himself to a position where he put himself in a position where he needed a Middle Eastern teenager girl, teenage girl for his very survival. All of that is rooted in his love for us. See, John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, God longs to transform our world and our own lives from places of despair to places of life, to make enough room for everyone to be welcomed into the, fam into the family of God. But sometimes, even though God's holy stories of transformation begin with this great glorious proclamation of good tidings of great joy, a lot of times what has to happen in the process of that change is the stretching and the changing and the messiness and really that's growth and that's transformation and that's change and it's hard. But take heart because God is birthing something new in you and he's birthing something new in this whole world. Now, our family is currently waiting for a friend of ours to give birth. Um, her due date is tomorrow. And the reason we're, we're so connected to this one particular um, due date and this birth is because 
when the wife goes into labor, we get the other kids and we have to watch them. So immediately when we get the call that says, hey, wife's in labor, we're going to the hospital, we have to prepare the room. We have to get ready for the other children to come with us. We have to make space for all of these different things to happen. And honestly, for weeks as I've been uh, counting down the days to the due date, I've been trying to rearrange the calendar over and over again and, and look at the different dates and say, oh, the 19th, if she could go into labor on the 19th, that would really help our schedule. And then we'll do it this way, this way, and this way. But if she doesn't go into on the, I keep trying to plan it. I keep trying to plan it, and, and the reality is, is I can't. The baby's going to come when the baby comes, and there's really nothing I can do to stop it. It's inevitable. And when that baby does come, the baby will change everything for, for our family's calendar and, and probably more so for the, the family that it belongs to. But when we get the call that the baby has come, everyone will have to hop to in response to it. See, babies sort of have this way of doing that to us. When they come, they burst into the world and they change the world for all of those that are connected to them, for better or for worse. And there's nothing we can do about it. And 2,000 years ago, there was a baby named Jesus that burst forth into the world and changed everything. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But each of us have to decide, like, how are we going to make room for this baby? There's one way that we can respond, which is sort of saying, like, mm, I'm not gonna. There's no room for you. Go stay with the animals. No vacancy. There's one way we can respond, and, and we do that in different ways by sort of turning from it. We do that in different ways by keeping our schedules and our calendars intact. We do that in certain ways by just saying, like, I'm not going to deal with the messiness, messiness of this whole thing. I'm going to keep the story neat and tidy so there's no room for Jesus in my life and there's no room for me in that story. We're just going to stay out from each of these. But there's another decision we can make. There's another way that we can respond to this. And the other way is to actually face how really uncomfortable we are. It's to stop looking away from the messiness of this whole story, to stop anesthetizing it, but instead to push through the pain and to take comfort that even in the uneasiness that we experience in whatever the situation is that we are in the middle of, that God is doing something big, that God is working in the middle of the messiness to create room, to create space for you in the story of Christmas and Jesus in the story of your life. And so my invitation for you today is that you would respond to this story not by sort of ignoring it or, or pushing away the pain, but pushing and pressing into the pain to allow yourself to be a part of this story and really to respond to the giver of life the same way that Mary did. Mary, when the angel comes to her to tell her that she will conceive and give birth to a child who will be the Messiah, who will be the king, what she does is she sort of has this response where she says, I want my life to be meaningful. I want to serve you, my God, with my life. And she says, may it be according to what you desire. Now, in that moment when Mary responds that way, she actually has no clue 
What sort of cosmic strategies have to take place in order to make that happen? But she opens her hands and she receives God. She opens her hands and she says, I will make room for you in my life. And that's the invitation that every single one of us has today. Let's pray together. Father God, I am so thankful for your son, Jesus. I am so thankful that that you sent him to be our savior, to be our rescuer. And I'm so thankful that you didn't send him in a way that was uh, sanitized and cleaned and all tidy and put together, but you allowed it to be messy because our lives are messy. And as such, you sort of created a picture for us a way that we could touch the story, a way that we could enter into the story. And so, Father God, I ask that you would show us these places where you are growing us and you are changing us and you're transforming us even though it doesn't feel good, even though it feels uneasy, even though we want to run from it. And Father God, I ask that you would be with us in the middle of those spaces. Amen.